This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Allingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. How are you doing today? Uh, doing pretty well. A little tired. We're starting sleep training with my infant child. Or I don't know if sleep training is the right word, but okay. uh, we're, we're learning to sleep, not swaddled. And that means we are relearning to sleep. Should I be relearning to sleep as well? Because I feel like I messed that up too. You need like a sensory deprivation chamber? Yeah, something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Reading reading my own papers before going to bed. Yeah, you need like headspace before bed. What about yeah. you, Sebastian? How's it going? Um, yeah, it's been it's been a little bit of a rough week. This past few days, you know, a lot of my friends have had um, family members pass away from COVID, which is, which is pretty sad. And, you know, just... I don't know, sitting that reality in, um, but, you know, don't want to hide anything from, from our listeners that like, this is the reality that we're living. And by the way, these are all in Peru, which doesn't make it different, but it's just, they're not like, you know, for my American circles, let's say. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. That's really tough. Was that like, not that it's expected, but we're, Mm -hmm. did it all Um, happen sort of acutely this week or was it? Yeah. So I think it was just like a coincidence of the past two weeks um but situationally in peru overall is not great um and you think we like almost ran out of ventilators so it's like a, it's like it's just just starting to hit the social circles getting closer and closer and i think that's what's it's scary of course but yeah yeah i'm sorry man thanks yeah, for sharing no worries uh damn that's what you know that's what we're here for being humans and, and dealing with topics um but today I'm very excited. We're going to talk about websites. And our special guest today is Chase Eck. Chase is a PhD student at the University of Arizona and a job market candidate this year. Uh, so check him out. Chase, Chase Research focuses on how SNAP influences health and economic well-being. Um, he's also a recipient of the NSF dissertation grant. And he used to work with Daniel Kahneman and Steve Levitt at Steve Consulting Group or firm, sorry, TGG Group. Chase, how are you doing? And tell us something about yourself that is fun. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Um, thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Um, sort of what's going on with me or fun fact about me is I just moved to San Diego for the semester. Um, and so that means two things, right? I'm one, one of those obnoxious people that can now only talk about how nice the weather is in San Diego. Mm. Um, and two, I've gotten really good at finding affordable outdoor patio furniture that looks stylish so oh. i can peruse all the websites like uh, in the trash exactly or in the stores you mean <laughs> uh i wish in the trash in the stores but because of covid we're not doing a lot of in-person shopping um and so it's like looking at wayfair amazon like 10 other websites that like you know i can't even remember right now to how do you spot like fakes this is a problem i've been having trying to buy stuff i'm unfamiliar with on websites uh-huh. or is there even a market for like a crappy fake launcher oh uh, like <laughs> i'd say like 
for me, like a fake just in terms of the, the brand is like not an issue because I'm a grad student. So, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, fake's not terrible, but like low quality. That's what I, I think mean. you look at the like, um, I mean, there's definitely a price difference for sure. Like few people are trying to pass off low quality furniture at the same price. Um, and then like the type of wood matters a lot. So like, and how big it is. What's, what's but, the optimal wood? Certainly not balsa, right? <laughs> I've been a big fan of acacia recently. Uh, and also like okay, the fact that you guys talking about type of wood, you guys are a different level. than what <laughs> that's, I am. A, that's a different <laughs> podcast. The woodworking. Podcast. Yeah. I, I furnish my living room on Glasgow that I shared with my roommate for like 50 bucks. That's why I hope you didn't get offended when I asked you about the trash, because I did a lot of, um, with trip story let's say. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Like that would be, that would be a preferred thing to do. It's just, I'm not going into. Yeah, that's true. So that's like, true. um, Find the deals. I mean, don't tell my advisor, but I spent way too much time the last week looking into these things. So. I hope your advisor never hears this podcast. Who's your advisor, <laughs> by the way? Um, Ashley Langer uh, and Gautam Garasankaran. Great, excited. Well, that's a yeah. that's a great segue um, to talk a little bit about your research before we get into today's topic. So, you're in the job market. Do you want to just give us your best pitch? My best pitch. Okay. Yeah. Um, no. No pressure, just the no best, pressure. <laughs> best pitch. Just Everyone, the optimal pitch. Our 10 listeners will definitely appreciate it. Go for it. Um, yeah, so, so, um, so I, my, my initial research was really on the SNAP program. Um, and through that work, I became really interested in infant and maternal health because um, it's very clear from that literature uh, that infant and maternal health matters um, a lot, both contemporaneously uh, and long into the future. Um, and the other thing that's really clear is that the U.S. is relatively poorly on measures of infant and maternal health. Um, Shocker. Yeah. And so one thing that struck me was that um, when you look at countries that do a lot better on these measures, they tend to rely a lot less on physicians uh, for low-risk births and a lot more on alternative practitioners, so midwives uh, or doulas. Um, And so, and part of the reason for that in the United States is that we have really strict occupational licensing laws for non-physicians. It's just hard to be not a physician practicing on your own. Um, and so what I'm interested in exploring my job market papers, what are the, the consequences of having stricter occupational licensing laws in medicine? Uh, and in particular, what would happen if we loosen them? Um, and Wait, so my, but before you get into there, it's part of the difference, like how much of the difference do you think could possibly be due to these and how much of the difference is due to like underlying population health or how, what things get counted as a birth or a death? Like, like what, what is the margin for this stuff to even like, like these licensing to matter? To matter. Yeah. I mean, so that's, I mean, that's really the big question of the research agenda, right? Is that countries have lots of differences and this is just one of them. Um, but the differences are huge. So for instance, in um, the Netherlands or in Germany, about a third of all births are at home with a midwife. About another third are um, in the hospital with a midwife and then only sort of the top third of highest risk cases actually have a physician doing the supervision. Um, whereas in the United States, like something like 80 to 90% of all births are with a physician in the hospital. And so that's a huge difference. Um, and sorry, in your job market paper, this is like domestic uh, work? Yeah so, my, uh-huh. yeah, so my job market paper is going to focus on just the United States um, and looking at as states loosen their occupational licensing laws for certified nurse midwives um, who are advanced nurses that specialize in maternal and infant care, uh, what happens as we increase their autonomy 
to measures of uh, intensity, so um, sort of the cost per birth or how many procedures you do, uh, as well as down the, down the line, sort of outcomes uh, and access questions. So what, what do you find? Uh, so I find a couple of things. Uh, the first is that there's a big drop in measures of intensity uh, when states pass these laws. So uh, when you give CNMs independence, hospitals in those states see a large reduction in their average cost per birth. So it's about 10% reduction. Um, and they also end up doing a lot fewer intensive procedures. So fewer C-sections um, uh, and others, uh, other surgeries associated with birth. Um, and and then are, you can... Sorry, you do, you do that at the state level. It's not just like the hospital. It's not like if there's a reshuffling across hospitals of like, yeah, now this hospital uses more nurses, but all the people that were like complex go to this other hospital. Yeah, so that's the next thing I do. So the treatment's at the state level, but I see individual patients. Uh, and so the next thing I do is decompose that between within hospital changes in efficiency. So are the same, are hospitals just getting better at um, maternal and infant health care? Uh, but they have the same types of patients, um, or is it the case that patients are now selecting into hospitals that are better matched for their risk level? Uh, and I find that most of the effect is the efficiency story, that hospitals are just getting better at it, um, about 80%, whereas about 20% of it is this better matching story, that patients now can go to uh, hospitals that are a better match for their better match for their risk level, and that's, that's leading to these changes in, in, a, in um, cost and procedures. So that sounds like really interesting research. Is your research agenda broadly focused on uh, licensing or, or you have different topics? Maybe tell us a, a little bit about your future research. Yeah, um, so I think my, my research is broadly focused on um, different ways that economic policy can influence infant and maternal health. Um, and so I have a paper on, um, on the SNAP program looking at how a shift to electronic payments for SNAP changes the way in which SNAP users use their benefits. Um, so there's this phenomenon where, you know, SNAP is an in-kind transfer program. You can only use the money for food purchases, um, but if you're already spending a lot on food anyway, you can just substitute the cash you would have spent for the SNAP. And so how much food you actually buy can change. And I find that the EBT payments changes that ratio um, quite a bit. And so the next level of that is to see, okay, so you're buying more food now, uh, how does that influence the, the health benefits that we know SNAP has? Um. All right. That's an awesome place to pause and switch gears to today's topic. Uh, I really appreciate you going through your research. It's, it's really interesting stuff. All right. So, Chase, what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> well, so getting ready to go in the job market, one thing I had to think a lot about was, you know, I got to get a website now, you know, and I got to get it for the job market. And it became really overwhelmed really quickly at all the different options for not just how to build it, but also what to put on it. Um, and so my question for you guys is, what really makes a good job market candidate website? Uh, and what are, you know, what are you looking for when you look at somebody's, somebody's site? Well, that's great that you asked that because this podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Actually, we're not, but that would be great if Squarespace would like to sponsor us. Um, Take the money. Yeah. So I, I think... I know Alex is going to, has a lot to say about this because I feel like he's talked a lot, um, or sorry, taught a lot about, more about this. So let me, let me just, I think, quickly say the, the things that are popping into my head when, when I think about websites that like maybe are, are obvious. And so I'll just say them because they're obvious, which is one, um, 
you know, you want to make sure that your CV and your contact information and the fact that you're on the market are extremely obvious. And I say that because um, I asked a couple of friends before this uh, to look at their Google Analytics to when they they just recently were on the market and what is the thing that they, people visit the most. And those are like the major things is like CV, uh, job market paper, and then, you know, where's your email? So that, um, so you want to have that like highlighted. And the second tip that I have um, that I don't know if everyone does it, but um, I, once I created my website, I would go to Incognito in Chrome or whatever browser you use, Google my name, and then click my website, the one that I wanted to, until basically went to number one. And I did it for Google, and I did it for Bing, <laughs> and it actually worked. And obviously, maybe it worked in my computer, but that's why I was using Incognito. But that's kind of like an easy, not an easy way, but that's a way of getting that link to come up quicker than before. I hadn't heard of that before. Is that like the simplest way to do search engine optimization? Just like click um, your name? It is. Like you have to do, it's like because nobody Googles my name. So conditional, like the people Googling my name, there's not a lot of like clicks. So if it's like for a company, you know, like it may not work that well. But it worked for me, I don't know, a couple of years ago. So, and I use Bing, so maybe that's different. Um, but you use Bing instead of I, Google? I, this is, this is <laughs> controversial here. I, I use have, Bing, yeah. I have heard that the number one search term on Bing is Google. It, and it's so true. It is. <laughs> oh, or Facebook. Uh, I use Bing because Bing gives me money for searching. And so they're giving me an incentive. Google is not. Therefore, I use Bing. That's we need a problem. whole, we need like an intervention podcast. Yeah, <laughs> intervention <laughs> podcast. This is the last podcast that we had actual listeners after this. <laughs> We're breaking we up. just dropped off. <laughs> um, great. So th- those are, I think, my little uh, small tips. But I, I like, you thought a lot about this. Um, you... I feel like have a really nice website. Tell us what you have to say about this. So full disclosure, like Chase asked those questions in the beginning, but Chase was like endogenously selected to do this topic also <laughs> because he has a really good website. So it's clear Chase is also- alert. In the today, <laughs> yes, the alert. Exactly. <laughs> notification. Wow. This is the nerdiest jokes I've ever made in this Yeah. Podcast. All right. We're <laughs> limiting our, our entire listener base to applied <laughs> microeconomists. So uh, in any case, uh, so just so you know, Chase's website is great too. And in preparing for this, I asked a lot of people for their advice as well. And then there should be, I don't know when this will be released relative to when it's recorded, but uh, there's likely going to be uh, an American Society of Health uh, economic sort of newsletter article that walks you through how to make what we think is one way to have a good website, right? So just, just be on the lookout for that. That link will be in the show notes if, if that article has sort of come out by the time this is published. Um, so the first thing that like I, I talked with Chase sort of offline about this beforehand is just this idea that like if you're a job market candidate, you're probably going to have a different website than if you're an established academic. And the second thing is directly answering your question, Chase, like, well, what makes like a good website? What's a hiring committee looking for? I think it's sort of important to address the first thing first. Um, and so I think it's obvious, right? Like new job candidates aren't established academics but it's important to think about what that means for the information that you'll be uh, sort of putting on display. Uh, So I think the two things that differ there are gonna be the target audience, but also the goal of the website. So the goal of an established academic is to provide information for an interested party. So you've done a lot of things. If you're like a full professor that's been out for 20 years, you've maybe taught a lot of classes, you've been on different sort of, I don't know, NSF, sort of uh, committees and things like that. You've presented in conferences. You maybe have many, many papers. So there's like a lot of content 
And in order to make that content sort of easily searchable, perhaps you'll necessitate various pages or entire sub pages of the website that are sort of separate uh, from one another. If you're a first time job market candidate, you might not have any publications at all. That's the norm, right? Different fields are different, right? So maybe if you're like a physics PhD or something, you'll have seven publications. Mm -hmm. uh, but in econ, it's, you know, a person with two publications in like top field, that's like a rock star on right. the market. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not the same. Uh, so just recognizing that difference is important. Um, the second thing is that target audience, right? So I mentioned like an established academic, probably the person searching your name is like a search like, oh, I want to, I'm like watching Sebastian give a talk. So I Google his name to see what other things he's worked on. Uh, I, you know, read a paper of his and I want to learn uh, more information. I want to find the appendix or the data. So I am willing then to put an extra effort to find that particular content I'm looking at. I'm maybe like poking around his website. Whereas, uh, not that that won't, won't happen to job market candidates, but just think about sort of the target audience then for a job market candidate is a hiring committee. And the hiring committee might receive like 400 applications or 200 applications for a particular position. And if they're going to the specific websites of the candidates, uh, you know, maybe it's a really diligent person that's willing to poke around every corner of the website. But just think about yourself if you had to go through 200 pretty similar websites, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, what would you be trying to look through? And think about it from that perspective. And rather than the goal being like a online sort of archive of all information, it's just to get hired, right? So you want to make it easy for that, that hiring committee individual to find what they're looking for fast and simply. Alex, that's an interesting point. One question that comes to my head is, is that an argument for not stylizing your website that much and making it look like everyone else's because then it becomes so familiar that it's super easy to access with the trade of being that then it's like a cookie cutter website and maybe you're not so comfortable with that. Like, how do you think about that? That's interesting, right? Like, so my way of thinking it is I want to reduce search costs for the hiring committee, but I, I don't think I'm like, part of the reason I was uncomfortable. So I made a template website that's based off of chases and based off of a Hugo academic theme. Like, so true version of a cookie cutter, right? Like everybody could copy it and edit it. And I was a little hesitant to recommend doing that because I was afraid like it would take all the individuality out of it. Right. 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 Like, I think it's cool if you want to post hiking pictures or travel or a food blog or like a part of Sony, one of our students, and she had a section on her website <laughs> that had recipes. I thought that was awesome. <gasps> oh, that's right? so cool. Yeah. We, we should make sure that that still exists yeah, uh, before, yeah. <laughs> before we uh, advertise it widely. Like that shows <laughs> off a feature of her personality. Yeah. Yeah. And by pushing this cookie cutter idea, you limit the ability to show that off, which I think is neat. So I think just balancing both of those is balancing. Important. So it's fine being cookie cutter for maybe the main information. And then you can add another tab that has some flavors about your personality because you're not cookie cutter yourself. Yeah. So, so um, there's this CV advice that we'll provide a link to in the show notes by Sarah Jacobson. And there's sort of, so I'll, I'm talking a little bit about the second section now, like what should my website look like? And in her sort of notes on what your CV should look like, I think they're really applicable to what your website should look like. And sort of this catch-all area we're talking about now, whether it's recipes or travel pictures or whatever, it should just be anything else that you want discussed when you're not in the room. That was her phrase that she used. And I like that quite a bit. Well, I think that's a good point that like you should make the main pieces easy to find and uniform, like the CV and your JMP. 
but then yeah, make another tab or put it there near the bottom, the sort of fun stuff, right? So if someone's interested, they can supply a, t- a tab that is called personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, people are hiring a person that they're gonna eat lunch with right. too. So I think that's like an important feature not to be right. ignored. That being said, right, I, I really do like thinking of a job market website as like a customizable, better, but less standardized CV. So it's not going to be printed out. So you, I, the way I like separate those two documents in my mind is like the CV is printed out. I still put hyperlinks and stuff in it, but I don't make it like hyperlink dependent. Mm-hmm. Whereas on a website, you can make it, you know, you can use color. You can um, think of it as a CV that won't be printed out but where you can be more dependent on these other links or even other media, right? So like you could imagine having videos in your website. Now you're imposing a cost if you do that and be aware of that, but you could imagine sort of adding some of these bells and whistles. Um, And we'll talk about here in a minute, just be cognitive of like that cost you add when you add a different bell or whistle relative to the value. Um, One thing I've seen a lot lately that I think is very cool, but I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on it. It's like, you know, for your paper page, putting a couple really like really good graphs there, like the graphs that tell the story of the paper, just sort of putting it there and having a quick blurb about, you know, your main point. Like, do, do you like to see that? Or is it like, you're just going to download the paper and, and you know, that's just distracting. I, I would say that I like that. For example, um, I don't know if Eric Chin still has this, but on his website, I remember when he was in the market, he had kind of like the one graph that kind of like summarized the results from his paper um, small blurb and obviously the link to the paper and the link to the media because at that point he had like a lot of media articles written about his job market paper. So I personally like that. Um, there is a feature in some websites where you can toggle information. Mm-hmm. And so I like it when it's like that where when you can select to see it or not to see it. And so it looks very clean if you don't want to see it. Um, but also if you want more information, you can click the toggle and come down. Yeah, and I'm for scientific communication in general. And I think like highlighting a really clean graph, maybe if it's even not like a figure that was in the paper, but is one you designed for the web or a presentation could be a really nice way to try to communicate ideas quickly. So Jonathan Schwabish, he came and gave a talk at our school. So in the talk that he gave uh, was just a simple idea that the presentation in a, sorry, the figure in a presentation is not necessarily the same figure that you use in the paper. I think the exact same statement could be made of the website too, right? Don't just think of this as like a screenshot of like one, the best figure from your paper. But if you could come up with the way of sort of illustrating the idea clearly, like, sure, use that. Um, yeah. And I, I do always think sort of like Sebastian was talking about with that toggling, keep in mind the, the marginal benefit versus cost, right? Like if you're increasing the search cost by making everything this really neat sort of like, looks like an Apple store. Well, like you just increase the search cost to maybe find like key information about yourself to mm-hmm. the hiring community. Well, the, and the other piece of that's like your own opportunity costs. Like one thing I've thought a lot about <laughs> is like you can spend, you know, weeks just like customizing your website and making it a really good scientific communication thing, like interactive graphs or really good photos, you know, and it's like, you know, at, at a certain point you got to think about what's the marginal benefit of doing that for you as well versus your yeah, own marginal cost. Exactly. And I think the the overall goal and this is following a bit of Sarah Jacobson's CV advice too, is just keeping it clear, concise, and simple. Remove the unimportant, keep the important in there. And then a rough order of importance, which of course could be different by person, is sort of the following. What is your name? What is your contact information? 
What is your degree in and previous education or appointments held? You know, what are you interested in doing? Do you have publications? What are your working papers, works in progress, teaching, then anything else? And then um, what about if you happen to have one of your working papers or articles you know, involved with the media, is that something that you add below the article, kind of like a media coverage, or you have it in a separate page? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think you should highlight this type of information in a way that's connected to the paper itself, just like you said. Like, I don't know about like right below, but like near it in a way that's obvious. I've seen some people do a thing where they have like a media tab, mm-hmm. and then you could like click the tab and see all the various media. But I don't know, that kind of makes it slightly more difficult to realize how much media a particular article might have received. Yeah. You can even imagine like embedding like an altmetrics, uh, altmetric badge or something like that, which shows like how many like tweets and blog posts oh, and Reddit cool. threads are made about your article. But like, again, that sounds kind of complicated. How do, how do you spell that? The metric thing? Altmetric? I'm pretty sure is how like you spell ALT? it. Like ALT? Yes. Oh, okay, um, cool. We can verify that quickly. Um, but, I think another, another possible controversial question and one that like, one that I really struggle with, and I think grad students don't quite know what to do with, is in the teaching section, should you put like instructor ratings? You know, so I get overall instructor ratings or actually Arizona stopped doing the overall one at some point, but should you list those or not? Yeah, that is very controversial. Let's end the podcast there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll give you you my thoughts on it. When I was in the market, um, I did include a link to per class my ratings. Um, no, I, I did a summary of my ratings of my, as a TA, and then I put the full set of comments. This was controversial because some people were selecting the comments that they were put in. I decided to go uh, full full transparency. I don't actually know what the right strategy is, so I'm just sharing what I did. Um, Alex, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is really endogenous, right? So if you have a very bad instructor rating, first of all, work to improve it, whatever that means, right? Like just yeah. like think about why you have a bad one. Is it because you had a bad draw of students or did you actually do a bad job? But also like you want to highlight stuff that helps you get hired. So if you like have a really good instructor rating, highlight it. I think it would be dumb for Chase not to put his doctoral dissertation improvement grant on <laughs> his <laughs> website. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like highlight it here, but like, it would be like, why wouldn't you put that on there? It's a yeah. important piece of information about yourself. And then like just separate little things that have come up along the way uh, that we're talking with people about this, like when should you put a paper in the working paper versus work in progress section? And again, (laughs) just always think about it from the perspective of the hiring committee. If you put something in your work in progress, I'm going to like potentially ask you about it. So if it's just like some random idea you had while like drinking a beer with your buddy, don't put it in the work in progress idea. But if it's like a full PDF that you submitted to a journal, also don't put it in work in progress. That's a working paper, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's like a hard and fast rule, but just think about like. My, my rule is that if there's a paper, then it's a working paper. But if there's no paper written, <laughs> then it's just working progress. And, you know, conditional of like there is a first state, you know, a first analysis done that you will have a paper on it. Um, yeah. And mine is if it's a paper I'm willing to share. Like I have drafts of some <laughs> papers where I'm like, this is true. filled with typos. I don't want it to be on That's the internet. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely think like. Uh, just one other little minor thing is trying to host all of the PDFs on your own website. I, I don't know if this is actually true, but I've heard stories of people saying before that uh, links to Dropbox or Google Drive hosted PDFs 
aren't available in all places, particularly certain countries. Um, so I don't know if that's true, but I don't know. I definitely it know. It is true. Okay. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, even yesterday, I tried to access somebody's CV, and they saved that on the Google Drive, and then it was asking me for permission. Be like, you don't have permission to do CV. And so little things like that um, could be really a turnoff for some people because of the search cost. So Chase, I want to ask you two quick questions here as we're finishing up. Can you just walk through at a high level what the differences between making and hosting a website is? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm definitely not a website expert, but I think the making is coding it up, getting all the files together. Um, you know, it's what the, what the browser is going to read to sort of you know, figure out what web page it is. Um, and hosting is like the server where you store it. Um, so it could be at home, like your computer could be sitting there waiting for requests to like send those HTML files, send your website to somebody. Um, but usually you want to do, um, you know, a cloud hosting service. So Google could host it for you. Um, GitHub pages is a really great way to host your website. Um, or I think in the tutorial that you made, it's uh, netlify.com will host it for you. And so it is, it's just a dedicated computer waiting to send somebody your website, you know, when they type your URL into the, into the web browser. Yeah. And then I just want to also stress here, this stuff can be as complicated as you want it to be, or as simple as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So Chase, one of the things you didn't mention was WordPress or Squarespace, but did you look at those options at all when you were considering how to make and host your website? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I looked at like maybe eight or nine different options. Um, What's nice about uh, Squarespace uh, or Google sites um, or WordPress is that they have interactive tools to help make the website itself. So you don't have to do the coding. You don't have to worry about the underlying files. They'll sort of help you do it in a point and click manner. So that's a really easy, quick way to get a clean, good looking website up and running. All of these tools, I think I believe are free. And there's always like a a paid service that you can pay. Um, And most people, I think, found that they're paying it because they want the, the web address. But just know that there are several ways of obtaining that web address. So you don't have to go with WordPress Premium. You can buy it from somewhere else. Um, and is that what Netlify does? Or like maybe maybe somebody else can jump in here on how do you obtain a web address? Yeah, so I, I guess we've got three things going on, right? How do I make the files? How do I host the files? And what's the URL of your website, right? So there's lots of different services that will combine those three things for you. And those are the simplest ways. So like Chase mentioned Squarespace. So like my original website when I went on the job market was made through Squarespace and I just paid them $9 a month and they made it easy for me to make it. They hosted it and they allowed me to pick a custom domain name. So it was like alexjhollingsworth.com. So that was really easy for me. I was stressed on the job market. I could afford $9 a month, but in the long run, $9 a month is a long time to pay for forever. Right. Right. So, so like you don't need to do that. Um, so I, the article that I wrote with Chase's help um, based off of his job market website for the Ashicon newsletter was like, how do I do it totally for free? But we ignored your question about URL. We were just yeah. like the, the silly quest, the silly URL that uh, Netlify is going to give us will be sufficient. Um, you're going to need to pay for and do some legwork to get your own URL but it's not that expensive and certainly $9 a month is like nowhere near the cost of what it costs to get your own URL. It's closer to like $9 just like per, per year, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's some probably time yeah. temporal component to it. Okay. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Like Namecheap, I think works to get your own URL if you want it. Um, Chase, you use you host yours on Google, uh, sorry, on GitHub Pages. I think that's fine. What, what do you think? Yeah, I really like GitHub Pages. I think it's a really, I mean, super stable, um, pretty good server. Um, and I think the thing it does, and a lot of other apps do that host for you is you can buy, you know, release a URL like you're talking about. So it's like chaseact.com. Um, but what GitHub Pages or Netlify will do is you can do chaseact.github.com. Mm. Uh, and that's free. And also it's a lot less likely to be taken already. Um, so it might be the case that there's another Alex Hollingsworth out there, you know, wanting to grab your domain name. There is. Uh, you know, and you'd have to, <laughs> is that, has he emailed you? No, I've emailed them. They don't have anything hosted on it, but they won't. Get it. <laughs> Wait, this is like an actual thing. This is true. Yeah. I want alexhollingsworth.com. But oh. I have Alex J. Hollingsworth. Sue, Sue, Sue. Oh. <laughs> yeah. What, one minor point here. Uh, whatever service you're going to use to host your website just make sure like, like do just the smallest amount of research beforehand to try to figure out how it is they make their own URL for their free version. So for instance, like with GitHub pages, if you decide to, to host it with that, your username for GitHub becomes the basis of your website. So like I didn't, you know, I've had GitHub for a while, I think probably before GitHub pages existed. So like my like username is H-O-L-L-I-N-A. That's not really helpful. That's not Alex Dash Hollingsworth. Whereas Chase's is Chase Dash Eck. So it's like like his website ends up being informative because of his choice of his user. Chase, every week we like to give our listeners a recommendation of the week. This could be anything, a book, a quote, something about a code. What is your recommendation of the week today? Yeah, so I, I've been sort of grinding away my job market paper. And so the, the tool I've been using the most and what I just can't recommend enough is a relatively new R package to do high dimensional fix effects. It's called fix S by Laurent yes. And it's, I mean, it's wicked fast and it's really easy to do a lot of complicated things in it. So it's, it's just been really uh, super helpful as I've been doing my work. Awesome. Would you send us the link so we can put it on the show notes? Definitely. Yeah. Great. Alex, how about you? What's your recommendation of the week? So I just double down. I, I have my own recommendation, but FixEst is awesome. So <laughs> using it in the package, I just be careful what your default standard errors are, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> um, so uh, I really like uh, this blog and podcast and sort of Twitter of this uh, academic, uh, Dan Quintana. So he's a researcher at the University of Oslo. And he actually produced, so he produces a lot of information that's relevant to scientific communication. And I used his uh, how to make an academic website in R sort of as the basis of my sort of article about how to do one for a job market candidate. Uh, I like him because he uses, he gravitates towards similar tools that I use like R and things that are open source. Um, But he has a really nice ability to sort of explain things to a general audience. So that's why like, if I would have written that article totally on my own, I would have focused like, here's how you code it in terminal and do all this stuff. And he's like, no, I found a thing called Netlify, drag it here. You know, mm-hmm. so he's just really good at understanding, I think, uh, how other people will interpret uh, practices and things and be able to actually use them. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, my recommendation of the week will be a very simple so I like to listen to a lot of audiobooks. And in audiobooks, you can learn a lot about how to make websites or even code. But I know a lot of people use Audible. Um, I like to use Libro.fm, which is uh, the same kind of application, but I think it outsources or crowdsources from small bookstores. 
So check out Libra FM if you're interested in more audiobooks. Awesome. Well, Chase, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh, a really nice opportunity to learn more about your research, but also just to learn about uh, from the perspective of a job market candidate. How did you go about building a website, evaluating these different tools? Uh, enjoy San Diego, man. Thanks yeah. so much. And thanks so much for having me. It's been a super fun, uh, really informative experience. Thanks. All right. Well, we hope everybody has a good week. Please remember to leave us a review and to reach out to us if you have any suggestions for topics or guests to have on here. I uh, hope you guys have a great week. See you later. Bye. Bye.